grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, obviously the space has changed a little bit. The tree is gone. The poinsettias have been put away. But we still have a banner up. We have come to worship him. And that tells us that we're at the backside of Epiphany. Now, the formal celebration of the Magi visit is always held on the 6th of January. That's 12th night, as it's sometimes called, because it's the 12th day of Christmas, as we have in that long-standing tradition. Now, during that event, wise men brought the humble child Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, honoring him as the coming king of Israel. Now, these wise men were most likely descended from the ancient Babylonian astrologers that were taught about this coming Messiah by the prophet Daniel during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar some 500 years before his birth. And then that knowledge was passed down through the years from, from new class to new class until we reach these men in the fullness of time. And they come and they bow down before the infant king. Well, the word epiphany comes from the Greek epiphania. It generally means a sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. And that certainly, that meaning certainly fits with what we see with the, the Magi. These royal personages, they recognized a special meaning behind an otherwise ordinary seeming birth in a forgotten backwater of the Roman Empire. Now, the church uses it a little more specifically to refer to an appearance uh, coming into view or a manifestation of a deity to a worshiper, especially looking at Christ coming in the New Testament. Though we celebrate the infant Jesus as he is first revealed as king, what happens almost 30 years later is even more of an epiphany as God the Father gets into the act by formally introducing his only son to the world through a very special, highly unusual baptism involving two cousins. Now, the Bible contains two instances where Jesus interacted with his older cousin John. Now, the first was during the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, if you remember that, when Elizabeth was six months along with John, and Jesus had just been miraculously conceived within Mary's womb through the power of God. At their meeting, Elizabeth was inspired to exclaim, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, 
the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And, of course, in response, Mary uttered the words of her Magnificat, beginning with, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, that was John's first contact with Jesus. And the next recorded meeting wouldn't happen for 30 years. In the meantime, three months later, Elizabeth gave birth to her son, John. And his father, Zechariah, spoke a prophetic word over him. Now, I'll get back to that in a moment. But it's important to note that at this point in the narrative, as we get it from Luke, he wrote about John only this. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now that suggests to me that Jesus and John had very little contact as they were both growing up. Jesus was living in Galilee, while John spent his time some 40 miles away in the wilderness around the Jordan. Their one shining moment together happened there in that wilderness of the Jordan when Jesus came to seek out his cousin John and ask for a favor. John had been busy at the river. He was giving a baptism of repentance to those who had recognized their estrangement from God and wanted to make amends. You know, they, they'd been without any contact with the Lord for hundreds of years. You know, no, no prophetic utterance, no appearances, and they had become lost. Now, I'm almost certain that John felt from that very first encounter in the womb onward that if there was only one absolutely true thing, then Jesus was that promised Messiah. And if he knew one thing about the Messiah, he knew that he didn't need a baptism of repentance. However, here in our gospel lesson, we find cousin Jesus asking for exactly that. As it says in Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, a brief negotiation ensues here, and that fact gives us a clue or two about their relationship. First of all, it appears that Jesus and John obviously didn't plan this. I mean, there are some people that try to say that, that Jesus just tried to make himself look like the Messiah, but it, according to the, the text here, John didn't know anything about this. He was taken aback by by Jesus' request, and he had to be talked into it. At first, John wasn't having any of it. As the reading continues, it says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Again, remember, John had been busily talking up Jesus to 
his followers, those who came out to the Jordan for the baptisms. In Luke's gospel, we find John saying to those who had come to him at the Jordan, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What John had been doing wasn't that. His baptism was one of repentance, born out of the commission he was given at his birth when his father Zechariah said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the ways of peace. The people of God had strayed far from him, and they needed to repent. They needed to change their direction of their lives, to turn back to the only way of salvation. And in the Old Testament, you can read about these elaborate rituals that had been set forth for cleansing that involved various washings with water, and they were all designed to enable someone to merely approach God in order to present a sacrifice as a temporary fix for their ongoing problem of sin. But John was there offering a different washing, a washing that would go much deeper than mere externalities. It was a baptism that anticipated what was to come, preparing the way of the Lord. It was a baptism that pointed to forgiveness through repentance. So to make his point, Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus is inviting John here to take part in this act of supreme righteousness. But John was right in that Jesus had no need for such a confession and such a cleansing. However, that's not why Jesus had to take part in it. All of humanity needed Jesus as a human to fulfill all unrighteousness on our behalf. As the second Adam, Christ came to do everything perfectly in order to redeem a fallen humanity that was given a perfect creation, managed to corrupt it in short order, and then had struggled to make it right ever since. And as a small part of trying to put things right, Jesus needed to acknowledge humanity's need to repent and to turn back to God. His words to his cousin about us fulfilling all righteousness convinced John to relent and to join his cousin in this ritual of righteousness. Our reading concludes, then he consented, 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God openly repeats language that the Jewish witnesses knew all too well. Words from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, words that the rabbis taught as being unmistakably messianic. And you can't get a better epiphany endorsement than that. Now, this event featuring the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interacting at the same time in the same location wasn't set before us just as a means to refute oneness Pentecostals and their ilk with their modalistic view that God is one and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are merely different manifestations of that one God. No. God likes to create word pictures for us. Ways in which we might get a deeper understanding of who God is and what he wants us to understand about him. He gave us a similar picture back in Genesis chapter 1 where he revealed his true nature through the very act of creation itself where God interacted with the word of God even as the spirit of God hovered over the darkness of the chaotic void in anticipation of the reality of the perfect creation that would come to be. Here, at this baptism, the picture we see is of God the Father recreating a new spiritual reality through the word of God. As the Holy Spirit closes that gap that represents the spiritual void that Jesus would absolutely fill and all that would come to fruition at Calvary. In his great commission, Jesus gave us this mode of baptism to be given in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as a means to increase his kingdom. Baptist Baptism is one of the great gifts that God has bestowed on us. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for his sins, but we needed him to take that step and a few others besides for our salvation. Then Christ gives back. He, he introduces a new baptism, demonstrating again his love for people of all ages. Philip Melanchthon wrote in the Augsburg Confession about baptism this. Concerning baptism, our churches teach that baptism is necessary for salvation and that God's grace is offered through baptism. They teach that children are to be baptized, being offered to God through baptism, they are received into God's grace. You see, 
This is the way that God applies the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection to us personally. Not as some work that we can accomplish, but as a gift that is given to us, despite our sinful nature that is fueled by our fallen heritage. It is the gracious word of God proclaimed with the water that works forgiveness of sins and salvation. This is what John anticipated. This baptism for the remission of sins that Christ himself commands us to do. In so doing, we gain blessings that can sustain us through life's difficulties. As Martin Luther wrote in his large catechism, when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort and say, nevertheless, I am baptized. It is promised to me that I shall be saved and have eternal life, both in soul and in body. And all of this came to be in small part because two specially connected cousins got together and fulfilled all righteousness for us for all eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen.